Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it Today's episode is about bird dog training with a focus on understanding your dog's mental state. The featured guest for this discussion is Tim Springer, owner of Dynamic Retrievers, which is a bird dog training business Tim and his wife own that concentrates on this mental side of bird dog training. Also joining me for today's conversation are a couple of my Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever co-workers, Casey Sill and Emmy Marrier, who have spent time training their own bird dogs with Tim this summer. So they'll be able to provide first-person perspectives on Tim's methodology. The four of us have just finished a short but very warm training session together. So we're going to talk about um, that session, as well as Tim's bird dog training f- philosophy focused on a bird dog's mind. So let's get inside the head of our bird dogs. Going around the horn, uh, we've got Tim Springer, Dynamic Retrievers, Emmy Marrier, uh, Membership Marketing Manager at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and Casey Sill, Public Relations Specialist. So why don't we just start a little bit about each of you, Tim. You're a featured guest. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and uh, how you got into bird dog training. Sure, thank you. Well, I grew up in west central Minnesota, and I think I might have read an article on Ducks Unlimited or something of, with the dog retrieving a duck, and I, I really got it in my head that I needed to have a, a dog to help me duck hunt. And I hounded my parents for about two years, and when I was 14 years old, I got and trained my first dog, a black lab named Cody. Cody. Yeah. And Cody was just really a natural. I trained him following the the books, Water Dog and Mm -hmm. Gun Dog. And um, he became an awesome waterfowl hunter. And I, I I had became an addicted waterfowl hunter myself. And Cody and I and my friends hunted all over all around Elba Lake and Evansville, Minnesota, Ashby, Minnesota, out in that rain, yeah. uh, area, duck hunting. And um, I uh, I would chase roosters after duck hunting clothes. <laughs> and and, and we, hunted, we hunted a lot of public land in western uh-huh. Minnesota where there are very few pheasants. So if you got on the scent of one, you better follow it because <laughs> might, might be the only one This around. is your teenage years? Yes, sir, my teenage okay. years. Okay, yep. all right. Yep, and then I went to school at the University of Minnesota in the Twin Cities. Okay. And uh, in my third year of college, I uh, I had my dog with me down there when his name was Forrest. Okay. And in 1998, I ran my first NARA hunt test down at the Horse and Hunt Club in Prior Lake, Minnesota, yep. and, and then became addicted to, to being able to spend time with my dog in the off-season doing waterfall hunting type thing with, with my dog. And I became acta in, active in the NARA hunt test clubs and helped out with tests and put on tests. And um, eventually even started to run field trials as an amateur. Okay. And I trained my own dog, a female chocolate lab named Candlewood's Lucille Brown. 
and I could Candlewoods Lucille Brown. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I qualified and ran her in the 2006 National Amateur Retriever Championship. Okay. So I'm proud of that. That was a big accomplishment. Um, I graduated from the University of Minnesota, and I worked with autistic children for 10 years. And then in July. So what's your degree? Uh, in uh, it's psychology, but it's basically behavioral psychology. Okay, so it's all all behavioral coursework. The foundation for where your philosophy in your new business came. C- certainly, uh, my education had a huge positive influence, I believe, on my abilities as a dog trainer. Okay. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And and how long have you been doing dynamic retrievers? Yeah. So I. I quit that very good job. I was very scared to do it um, in July of 2006. Okay. So we are about at the 17-year anniversary here. Wow. In Congratulations. July. Yeah. So, so the job you're talking about was uh, working with autistic kids? Yes, sir. Where, where were you working? I worked all over in the metro area, and I would, I would go from home to home and help um, teach these children like life skills, how to talk. Wow. And how to interact and be social. That had to have been very gratifying, too. Yeah. it Yeah, definitely. And I still keep in contact with some of those people that are now yeah. young adults. Huh. And the, the dog training, I'm assuming the dog training provided just professional freedom to do, make your own hours and kind of go towards a, a different passion. Yeah. When you, I don't know, when I started my own business, it, it felt way different. It was certainly more hours. Okay. But it, it's but it's like yours. It's your own deal. So yeah. I know I kept track. I worked every day, all day for three and a half years straight without <laughs> with, without a day off, so including to speak. Christmas. Including Christmas, yeah. the dogs still need to be taken care of. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying I trained every single day. Gotcha. But the dogs were yeah. Taken you fed care them, four took five, them outside four or five times a day. Get let out. Okay. And, and how many dogs are we talking? Well, when I first started, I I I couldn't believe it when I got to like twelve dogs. Yeah. You know, I couldn't even believe it. And and now the number is much higher. We have uh, at least 30 dogs here in Minnesota. And then I have a Texas facility that has about 12 to 15 dogs at right wow. now with a trainer there. Wow. Yeah. So my wife, Lauren, and I do this full time together. And we have three assistant trainers and four other workers. Cool. That help us. Well, we're going to dive deep into your philosophy because it's really fascinating. I learned a lot this afternoon. So thank you very much, first of all, for taking the time to show me the ropes, uh, kind of the beginnings of retriever training. Um, and thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. Uh, let's throw it to, to Emmy. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. My name is Emmy. I am also from Minnesota. And I'm on my second bird dog. So I have that fun experience of learning a new dog. And I am connected with the same hunt test club. So I also run NARA. And one reason that I do that is because the hunt test component has an upland side. Mm. So with retrievers, it really has the a trail aspect. And when you get into the big leagues, you are, to, are judged on quartering. So I can't forget quartering because my flat coat, that's where he would rack up all of the points <laughs> <laughs> when we were running. Um, and yeah, as you get to the big leagues, then it's steady to shot that they have in there. So Kay. that's a really unique component of running specifically with NARA. And that's basically how I know Casey. We train together, and also Tim joins our group because he has that connection as well for where he started with hunt tests. Uh, so my dog that I first got is a flat-coated retriever named Lux, and I'm now still on Team Black Dog, but I now have <laughs> a <laughs> black lab. He is one and a half, and I got 
Him because I wanted a bigger motor, and I have definitely got that. So we've got our <laughs> sights set on figuring out how to get to the big dog level and run at senior, which would be the equivalent of master in AKC. Cool. And just uh, real quickly, tell us what you do for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Yes, I get to manage our direct mail program. So if you get a piece of mail that is encouraging you to give uh, money to our org and hopefully create more upland bird habitat, I send those if you're a current member, and then also we are a membership-based organization, so I get to do our renewing and hopefully finding new people to bring into the bird club. I, I always find it really gratifying when we talk with a variety of people throughout the organization on the podcast, and you know, I think it's really validating for members to hear that you know we're all living this lifestyle too, yes. right? You know, yep. training our dogs, trying to create habitat for upland birds to perpetuate a heritage that we care deeply about. You cared tremendously about your dogs, going to, you know, traveling with your dad um, every fall to Nebraska or Western Minnesota. That's this where the is, quail are. They, that is where <laughs> the quail are, right? And, yep. and when you write, you know, direct mail pieces, you're speaking from a place of authenticity. And I, I think that that is just wonderful when our members and our supporters and our sponsors hear that. And it's like... Yeah, she doesn't have just one dog. She's got two she's working with. So yes. um, very similar, Casey. Uh, y- you live this lifestyle, too. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, so my name's Casey Sill. I've been at Pheasants Forever about well, almost coming up on two years. Um, and I actually came to the retriever sort of hunt test world through my previous job. I was a, a newspaper editor in this area and r- had written a column about struggling with uh, a young lab. And uh, one of the guys who helps run our club, Ray Espel, happened to read it and reached out to me and said, hey, you should, you know, think about giving this retriever, you know, hunt club world a try. And, uh, yeah, I I came out. I had no intention of getting involved in it, you know, at a testing level or anything like that. And it took me all of about two weeks to absolutely (laughs) become obsessed with it. (laughs) You've never heard that before, have you, Tim? (laughs) I've heard it so many times since then where we'll have a new guy come to the club. He's like, I don't don't really want to test. I just want to make, you know, get it, improve my dog a little bit. And then, like. (laughs) <laughs> first test that comes around they're they're ready to go yeah you so. know i've been known to say bird dogs are the cocaine of conservation case 100 <laughs> percent. you sniffing white lines i always think to myself i remember i just wanted a dog to bring the bird back and what happened yep. yeah you know yeah. that's exactly what happened to me is i i discovered this world but you know i and there's always something to improve upon, right? So I discovered this world when my dog was already a, an adult dog. I'd been through a couple of seasons. So it's like you get into it and there's a, you get into like a further level and then another level. And, uh, you know, you want to improve upon what you've, what you've done already. So I'm already, you know, a dog's four years old. I'm already, I love this dog to death, but I'm mm. looking forward to the next one as well, right? Mm. So it's like, what can I do differently? What can I correct from, you know, the yeah. billion mistakes that I made? Yeah, and you'll do the same the on the one. third dog. Right, yeah, right. And the 17th oh, and yeah. the 18th and whatever, yeah, so... And tell us what you do for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Uh, so I'm the, I'm the public relations specialist. So I work, uh, I do a lot of media relations, write, uh, write for the blog, write a few magazine stories here and there. I work with Jared Wickland, our awesome public relations manager. So, yeah. <laughs> your, your review's coming up. Isn't I know. That's <laughs> why, yeah. And you yeah. do have an uh, uh, article coming in the super issue, which is probably yeah. yep. 
uh, as this airs, landing in members' mailboxes pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty close, yeah. Tell us what's the synopsis of that article. So that story focuses on uh, sort of a, a combo hunt that myself and Hunter Booth, who's one of our graphic designers, went on um, last fall. And Hunter and I are two of sort of the resident waterfowl nuts in the office. Uh, so we decided to go on a hunt out west to see... Uh, Western Minnesota. Western Minnesota. Yeah, yeah not Our West, West means different <laughs> yeah, things no, to that's, that's the true. audience. Yeah, um, <laughs> to to kind of cut our upland teeth a little bit. You mm-hmm. know, we're we're pretty experienced waterfall hunters, but we work for pheasants forever, so we figure we ought to know what we're doing uh, when it comes to pheasant Good hunting thinking. as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, and not that I wasn't a total novice, right, but right. you know, I certainly lean more heavily into waterfowl. At least I have in the past few mm-hmm. years. So. Yeah, we went out western Minnesota and I had a great time. Shot a f- shot a few birds. Uh, Hunter actually shot his first uh, wild public land rooster, so that was pretty cool, man. It was a good trip. We just have to get you to change your attire as yeah. we're recording. You're wearing a duck camp mallard I hat. <laughs> <laughs> we need I, a, we need you to get the pheasant duck camp. I know. I, I or may, the quail. I may do that on purpose once in a while. Like I put it on for a meeting just, <laughs> to, just to throw a little waterfowl in there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, I want to give a shout out to our national partner, Onyx Hunt, uh, proud supporter of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. They're a national sponsor, and they're a sponsor of On the Wing Podcast. They love hunting birds just as much as every listener does. Um, And they have a special offer. You can download the Hunt app for a free seven-day trial and get 20% off your Onyx membership by using the code PFQF. That's 20% off your Onyx membership using the code PFQF and a portion of Onyx's uh, proceeds, or Onyx will donate a portion of the proceeds back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat mission. All right, time to dive into the meat of the episode. And I, I, I preface this in the opening, Tim, talking about you have a very specific sort of philosophical approach to bird dog training. Tell us about that. All right. There's four guidelines that I think are very important when training a retriever or probably any dog. Okay. Uh, get your pens out. There's four of them. All right. Yeah, there's four. <laughs> one of the big ones is the, one of the big ones is mental state. Okay. First of all, you as the trainer, I think should be a very calm and assertive uh, leader for your dog. I'm out. <laughs> on the column, everybody knew that already on the, on the I'm a short hair guy yeah. <laughs> go ahead and um but as far as working with the dogs retrievers specifically we're focusing on two mental states one is the prey drive mental state okay. which is excited where the dog's seeing the bird fall and going after it and you can really tell the dog's excited the other one is the obedient mental state and that's where the dog is under control like it's waiting patiently for ducks to come. It's not whining or moving around. And and then especially on a blind retrieve, which is a retrieve that a dog has not seen fall. The dog does not know where that bird is. And we direct the dog out from our side, stop it on a whistle when needed, and cast with our hands so it changes direction to get it to the bird. Mm-hmm. And And for that type of retrieve, we need a cooperative, obedient dog. And if the mental state is obedient the physical state will be more obedient. Hmm. So run through the, the uh, other, there's, so there's four yes. pieces, right? Yes. The, another big one is balance. Okay. 
following the 80% rule, and then understanding pressure. So those are the four. Okay, follow 80% rule and understanding pressure. All right, so, all right, mental state starts with prey drive and obedient drive, so two different things, and you explain those a little bit to me as kind of the fun and then the the very well obedient yeah right? yeah more a little more serious yeah okay. yeah and you know i think for our upland listeners this can correlate to the dog for example behaving at the vehicle before the hunt starts okay. you know can you get your dog out of the vehicle on calm quiet especially if you're hunting you know late season public land birds you shouldn't be yelling or screaming at your dog or it shouldn't it shouldn't run out there and start flushing birds before everyone's ready but anyways, your dog is calm, under control, around the vehicle, and then you can get that dog into that prey drive mental state and get it hunting really hard. But let's say you end up having to post at the end of the field or something. Now you want to go back to that obedient mental state where the dog will sit there calmly at your side as, as, the, as the other hunters push towards you, for example. Okay. So I think mentally, having a mentally balanced dog that can be obedient mental state or prey drive mental state is just a really good, fun dog to be around. Okay, so your next one is balance. Yes. So is that the, it, it, it seems like that's directly correlated to your first one. Yeah, definitely. You want to train for a balance between the obedient mental state tasks okay. and the prey drive mental state tasks. There's a balance between those two. And, and that lends itself to individuality for a given dog, for a high drive dog really driven we want to do more obedient things huh. and for a dog that's lacking the drive a little bit we want to do more of the fun or prey drive type stuff okay and and that's going to really help our our different breeds to be successful and different temperaments of dogs to be successful so you brought it right to it where i was thinking about it like a lot of people will make generalities about breeds related to biddability trainability stuff like this yes sir um it, can you correlate that breeds to that percentage of um, prey drive versus obedient drive, or is it really purely individual? Um, I think you can a little bit, but I'm always encouraging people to look at the breeding more than the breed of dog. Right. So, What's on the page? Yeah. What, 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 how do the mom and dad dogs act? What are they like? And that's your best predictor of how that puppy will turn out. And it's not a guarantee, but sure. that's your best predictor. But certainly I think you have – like golden retrievers that are a little more sensitive and smart. Um, we've trained Irish water spaniels, standard poodles. We've trained a lot of other kind of breeds very successfully hmm. too, I think because our program lends itself to that individual dog. Do you say that certain breeds uh, – so give it a Labrador. Do they fall more obedient, more Prey or are they naturally balanced? The Labrador Retriever, I think, is really all over the board. We see <clears throat> all over the board for yeah, individuals. Yeah, high crazy drive mm -hmm. to to lacking and everything in between. But usually, you'll it's you know the parent dogs are the best predictor of how that dog turns out. What the out. genetics? Way more than you say. Well, a lab is this way. Okay, uh, and you you started to take golden retrievers, for instance, are a little softer but super smart. Right. Yeah. So where do where do they fall on that prey obedient spectrum? Well, I think a lot of them have a high drive, high prey drive. Mm. Um, but a lot of them also have a 
intolerance for corrections they don't understand, and they will shut down or give up. And that's probably true of any dog, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're... Which they're, is part of your philosophy, too. Right. Yeah. So there are your really high-drive dogs that will tolerate pressure, you know, corrections they don't understand, but I don't really think that's okay either. Gotcha. I believe that dogs deserve to understand a correction they get. Yep. And that is one of the biggest things I think that's lacking in, in retriever training for sure. So explain that a little bit further because I think it, that that is a foundational principle of your philosophy, right? Yes. So we are very thorough in making sure our dogs understand the e-collar mm-hmm. in a controlled situation like around our yard before we ever would use that correction in the field. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that dog understands that correction. Because we probably, many of us have seen it where somebody's relying on the e-collar button to correct something, like a dog not recalling or going in another direction. They're hitting that button without the dog understanding what the owner is trying to get them to do. It just, yeah. it ultimately... Yeah, it's getting a, the attention and scaring the dog. Yeah, it's a very risky, unfair thing to do to not follow a collar conditioning program that's thorough and fair hmm. to ensure the dog understands a correction it receives. And then in the example you're explaining, you might imagine that the trainer or the handler of the dog might not be in the calm mental state themselves either. Hmm. And that's, I think that's really panicking? important. they're panicking? They're mad or upset or they're emotional. Confused or don't know yeah, what they're, to do. Yeah, because the dog's not behaving. Uh, you know, you've heard someone out there yelling at their dog because they're upset. Mm. And, um, you know, I hope that I can help educate people on how to train so they don't have to be upset or angry. Mm. So your process, when you're introducing the e-collar, never do that in the field. Do that in the backyard. Do it in the garage. Yeah. Try to control all the variables. Yeah, and I think that's one of the that's one of the um reasons i think that this process gets done incorrectly just what you're saying there in the yard but i'll be honest you don't need to use the e-collar in the yard to make your dog behave because it's a very boring stale environment Mm -hmm. when you get out into the field and there's all these distractions Mm -hmm. and it's an uncontrolled environment um there's a lot more reason to need to correct the dog for its safety and for obedience but if you haven't taught the dog to understand the e-collar in the in the boring stale yard yep. so to speak environment yep. Yep. it'll never understand it in the field so i hear it all the time and i made that mistake well i didn't need i didn't need to use the e-collar to teach my dog sit in the yard on a leash mm-hmm. or I, and i use treats and it sat just fine and i'm trying to educate people on that's really not the point we're trying to teach your dog to understand the e-collar right in this really stale environment so we can evolve that into the dog understanding that correction if needed later out out in the field. I equate it to like a scientist doing an experiment. The backyard or the garage is the control, right? And Mm -hmm. then when you go out into the field, that's when you're actually testing the experiment to make it sure it works. Right. That analogy yeah, works yeah. for you? Right. And, but we really, we really want to make sure and feel confident that dog will understand right. when we get to the field. Right. You've, you've ensured it 
yeah. based on the control yeah. in the backyard. Yeah, and we try really hard not to correct dogs in the field. We give them lots of chances. We try to teach. We try to show them what to do. Right. We absolutely are not relying on the e-collar to teach anything. But if we get into a situation where we need to use it, we want to make sure the dog understands it. Right. All right, I'll steer us back to your four points. Okay. So I think we're at number three, which um, was follow 80. So explain what that means. So the 80% rule, and, and I definitely, that definitely comes from my behavioral background. Mm-hmm. In the behavioral sciences, they talk about a level of 80% success is ideal to maximize learning for that individual. So if you're at 100% all the time, you're probably not progressing as fast as you could. And if you're at 60% success, you're failing too much and you're not learning. Hmm. So a level of 80% success is about a perfect amount where you're progressing as fast as you can. It's different than C's get degrees. Right, yeah. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> yeah, it's, so that's really so, – so explain that a bit, a little bit further to me so yeah. I make sure I understand it. So if you're at 100%, the dog is absolutely knocking it every time. You're not pushing for broadening that dog's abilities enough. Yeah, you're, not, you're probably not progressing fast enough. Or you could be progressing faster. Oh, okay. Yep. So you want you want to be always pushing that dog's limits to get them to do, whether that's distance, uh, blind retrieves, just different things. And if you can reach 80% effectiveness, then you throw in you, another Yeah, you want pitch. to stay at 80% of success during this process. So uh-huh. what you're asking the dog is a moving target. Huh. So if you're, having, if you're really having a lot of success, like you're at 90% with something, you're going to start pushing that dog a little bit, but you want to stay right around that level of 80%. And you, this is, I mean, you're shaking your head this entire time because you have this background in, in behavioral science as well. And this resonates with you from a training perspective. Yep, absolutely. It's also making sure that the response is reliable so that you have that, that they're succeeding. And once they show that, and then you really have that at that true 80%, you can add another element. So mm. you saw with doing blind uh, drill work with my dog Mm -hmm. we honed it in on i need to work on eye contact Mm -hmm. i need to get that eight that eye contact to 80 Mm percent once i do i now can appropriately add another element into this training because drill work has all these different elements and that was just one drill Mm -hmm. because you can now enter in there's a whole book full of drills (laughs) that you can throw at your dog but that's the point sure sure so the 80 percent rule i think also lends uh, itself to that individual dog. Mm. Every dog is different mm-hmm. and every dog has a different rate of learning yep. and that's perfectly fine. Yep. But whenever we're going to ask a dog to do something, we ask ourselves, do we have an 80% chance of success at the, at this going well? Hmm. If, if no, we simplify. And if we think, oh, it's hundred percent easy, then we're not progressing fast enough. Interesting. I've, t- I've taken that into, since I heard you say that for the first time, Tim, I've taken it into account in all kinds of stuff where I'm, whether I'm training by myself or a, at a group night or something, I come up to the line and I've, I've got that in my head now. Okay. Is this, if it's not an 80% chance of success, how, how do I need to change this setup to hmm. get to that point? And then if, if it's at a hundred, you know, I'm not, I'm not pushing myself hard enough. I'm not pushing the dog hard enough. So, cause I think that there's, it's, that's a conversation in the club. A lot of times is like, 
guys, you want to keep progressing and progressing and progressing, right? And sometimes you'll push the dog too far, right? I mean, it's where you're doing stuff that they're just, they're not ready to do yet. Yeah, if you're you know? failing all the time, then yeah. the dog is not learning right. for sure. Hmm. And vice versa, right? Like yeah. if you're passing every test that you take, then yeah. it's... Yeah, really, yeah. it's a it's a balance between success and failure, and you want 80% success. Right. Yeah, I've used that a, a lot since I heard you say it the first time. It, it's really, it, my mind goes to a couple episodes ago. I had a similar conversation with Dave Simonette and Mike Wieben. We, you know, we did a training session with Dave's dog, sat down and talked about process and expectations and stuff. And, you know, what we equated in a, a, a equated dog training to is artistry that you know it's a blend of artistry and science right you, you have a scientific approach through behavioral science right uh, how you want to approach this the artistry comes with and i think this is really important for listeners the artistry comes to we all hear and learn in different ways and our dogs are different and it's you know you guys obviously and Logan too, and the three of you connected and like, you got to do a podcast with Tim, you know, cause it's like instantaneous connection of the way that you talk and your behavioral science background and your training methods connects to the way certain segment of people learn and train their dogs. And it resonates because dog training can be very abstract if you don't quite understand the vernacular or what you're but when it resonates you're like that's the philosophy that's why there's so many different philosophies there's some core principles but then it's a little bit of artistry and where where what resonates is that yeah fit for you? i always get people that want to know like what's the what are the steps to follow to train a really great dog to mm-hmm. do this or that and that you can't answer that it's not you're not everybody wants you to answer that yeah. but but it's not it's not formula it's not like a recipe where you cook a, a bake a cake yeah it's it not isn't. a recipe of two cups of sugar and egg and it isn't and right every dog's up. different and right. every owner is going to learn differently right. right so if you can learn to follow these guidelines mm-hmm. and learn to understand dogs you'll you'll just be a much better dog owner dog trainer all the way around mm-hmm. all right so back to your recipe the, the recipe component. So number one, uh, your approach, the mental state and one A and one B or B and A and B of that are prey drive and obedient drive. Mm-hmm. Then number two is balance, understanding the balance between that mental state. I got this correct so far? Yeah. Number three is the rule, follow the 80% rule, which is... A little bit better than C's get degrees. <laughs> you yeah. want to get you want to get B's. <laughs> want B's. Uh, you want B's, and you keep pushing the dog and reach that eighty percent. You know that you're you're achieving enough success that the dog has capacity to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Okay, number four on your list. I wish I could read it, my. It mind. is. It, it's. It's. I call it pressure. Okay. So it's understanding. Understanding, okay, pressure, and that, and that's, and that can, and all these, all four of these, which relates back to the the e collar component we were talking about. Definitely, a big part of this is the e collar and helping people learn how to use it humanely and properly. Okay, but but that's not entirely. So explain under pressure, understanding pressure. First of all, about pressure, we need to all understand, accept that pressure is natural for dogs. They have a hierarchy, and 
they they use pressure in their own lives to maintain their order in the pack. Mm. So, okay, pressure is natural. Now, the the kind of the kind of pressure we use with an e collar, for example, is unnatural pressure. Mm. So that's where we're obligated to teach the dog how to understand the e-collar, known as collar conditioning. Mm -hmm. Um, But we certainly can and should use natural pressure on a dog, and we should learn how to do that because that's the best way to calm down a hyper dog. So explain natural pressure. Yes. So you you can move at the dog with your shoulders real stiff, and then I'd make that shh noise a lot. Okay. Shh, like that way, and I get the dog to look at me, with its ears pinned back a little bit, solid eye contact, and the tip of the tail wag. I use that natural pressure to put that dog in that obedient mental state hmm. to calm its physical state down. So you're using your own, and this probably starts the minute you bring a puppy home, right? It can. You're using your own dominance by being taller and bigger to have a physical presence of dominance Yeah. without ever even having to touch a dog. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There. There's not. It is not physical. Natural pressure is normally not physical. Huh. It would be extremely light when you bring that puppy home. Okay. And as the puppy ages, it would slowly, the natural pressure would slowly ramp up, huh. almost imperceivably to that puppy. Because we want that little. When you get that puppy, we want that puppy to feel very secure and to have fun and get socialized and you know and feel comfortable with us. And as it gets older and starts to become more independent, then that's our job to start putting a little pressure on that dog. And I don't think it's that unnatural what what, what would be happening in nature mm-hmm. at that time as that puppy gets older, too. I like to kind of think about what that might be like and try to emulate and follow that. Sure. Because that is part of their nature. Instead of fighting the dog's nature, I think we should go roll with the dog's nature. Mm. And if we truly are the intelligent species then we should kind of learn to understand them and to speak their language and not make them turn into people. Hmm. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah, so on natural pressure, Tim joined our training group, and at that point in time, my puppy was returning back with his bird, and he would do this big excited leap, Hmm. and he'd almost kind of like hit me a little bit, but he would just smack right into heel. And I didn't think anything of it. Mm -hmm. But in Tim's feedback to me, it was that it's not natural for your dog to bump you like that. And what I was told to work on is, as he's coming in, to step towards him. So if you caught that, I did that tonight because he has so much drive coming in that that natural pressure, I now step forward. And that literally slows him down and it pumps the brakes at the appropriate point. And then he has a calm, seated um, position that he comes in. And then the shh, I have no idea why it works. But I also had a really chompy, <laughs> chompy puppy. And that's very common for retrievers. They're very mouthy. So he'd get me this bird. He's holding it, but it's moving on his mouth. He's kind of gnawing on it. And shh was the response to that. Hmm. And I can say that one to three times. And he'll finally, his ears go back. And he's just calmly holding that bumper. And that's all natural pressure. Yep. And yeah, I it worked, a compliment yeah, from it you worked, today that yeah, it worked really great. Good. I, yeah, I was really <laughs> impressed with the improvement and that's from the training pressure. night. Yep, using natural pressure. So no conditioning is required. Every dog on earth understands natural pressure. Okay. And, you know, of course, on a podcast, it's really hard to show it. But if if, if some of the listeners just had a more of awareness of it mm-hmm. and then st- wanted to study it and try to figure it out, I, that's a win to me. So it sounds like – so 
Emmy's two examples. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. um, Lou, mm-hmm. right? Coming to your coming side and coming in too hot and hopping sounds like a dominance sort of um, illustration to me. Is that an accurate, like trying to exert a physical dominance towards Emmy? Well, not necessarily, but I certainly think that a dominant dog in a pack would not allow another dog to bang into it. Uh-huh. So if, if that, okay. if, if, if it would happen and that dominant dog would allow it, I think you would accidentally signal to that dog that maybe it, you know, maybe you are in charge and I'm not in charge. Right. So it just sends a mixed message to when your dog bangs into you or um, jumps on you without being invited. Okay. So like, for example, I have no problem with the dog jumping on someone if they've invited the dog to. Mm-hmm. If the dog jumps on someone without without permission, sure. now, now that uh, another dominant dog would never allow that. Gotcha. So when we have 30 dogs playing together in the airing yard and you're watching their interactions, mm-hmm. you can. that's how I've learned a lot. But the, the dominant dogs will play with the younger dogs, but the younger dog will uh, ask permission. And it'll, it'll approach that older dog, and you can see that dog almost looking annoyed maybe. Mm-hmm. And the younger dog will drop its front mm-hmm. – submissive front down and its butt is up in the air and it's like this like are you gonna play with me it might kind of pounce around but it's you know it's a few feet away from that dog it's not touching it at Uh all and then either that dominant dog either kind of decides no i don't want to do this or will engage with that younger dog and will play Hmm. but that but that dog kind of asks for permission in a dog kind of a way first it doesn't just go jump on that dog it so this is we're taking a different direction, but how, can you teach a dog to ask permission? And can you teach a dominant dog to play nice? It They already know how to. Hmm. It's just up to us to be that calm, assertive pack leader that has tried to understand the dog's mental needs hmm. and, and try to act like you're a dominant dog, not try to act like, your person-to-person interaction with the dog, mm-hmm. respecting the dog for being a dog and loving that dog for being a dog, but not trying to humanize it and think that you're partners with that dog because mm. dogs do not understand equality. Mm-hmm. Dogs only understand that they're above or below you. Yeah, there's the a hierarchy. In there. There's a hierarchy, and they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Thanks, hey, you know what? Thanks for feeding me and taking such good care of me. I'm just going to. I'm going to bring all the birds back to you perfectly. <laughs> you know, that's not Sign in the contract. wheelhouse of a dog. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just going to behave mm-hmm. and be great dog because you've treated me so well. Mm-hmm. You know, the dog will just take and take and take. And, and, and that's not being a bad dog. That's just being a dog. Mm-hmm. So for dog, most of our dogs are in the house now. Mm-hmm. For a house dog that's a hunting dog, what are some other opportunities for that, for those obedient training moments in the house that's right that's an awesome great question so every interaction you have with your dog is an opportunity for good or bad Mm -hmm. so so i certainly do not agree with the old adage that good hunting dogs can't live in the house right now if you have a hunting dog lives in the house that has no boundaries it just gets away with everything it jumps on everybody it knocks grandma down and takes food off the counter how I would not expect that dog to go afield and do well. Right. It, it won't probably. Uh, I mean, it might find some birds, but it's 200 yards ahead of you, flushing them all <laughs> before you get yeah. there. Um, now, 
you could also take those interactions and make them useful and have that dog behave and be in an obedient mental state and not jump on people and wait to be let out the door and wait to mm-hmm. take the food. And, and now you have a dog that is going to probably do great for you in the field, but that will carry over to training. But see, the dog doesn't understand the difference between training and then some other interaction with you, with you specifically. So the dog has a relationship with you. So you, you can't let it get away with stuff in the, in the house and then expect it to behave when you come out here out to Kelly field, Farms sure. training. But the dog can learn to listen to you all the time and then not listen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's one thing good. Uh, you Do not blame others for your dog not listening to you. You are responsible for your interaction with your dog. Mm-hmm. So before we transition to kind of talking about what we did right before the podcast with each of you guys, any other components of the training process of Tim's you want to highlight or, or point out or, or talk about Casey? Um, well, I think one that kind of jumps to mind for me from our, uh, the session that we did about a month and a half ago, and it, it, re- it opened my eyes up to little changes that I Something that I never thought about that uh, Tim c- could throw in just this really small change and make a big difference. And I don't know how relevant it is to, di- today's, to today's conversation, but I remembered it. Is, uh, you know, we were running running blinds, and it, traditionally you come up to the line, you know, you have a, a, a word that signals what you're about to do, right? So dead is very common. And then you'll line your dog with, you know, I use here and heel for directions, and then you send them on back, right? Well, I have always said dead and then line the dog back and forth, here, heel, here, heel. And she's really wound up and excited and sometimes doesn't listen to that very well. And you immediately said, uh, or I always, I'm sorry, I always line them first and she's really excited and then say dead and then say back, right? You said swap that, say dead first, so she knows right when you sit down what you're going to do. And I tried that one time, and I've done it every single time since then. Mm-hmm. And immediately her, she sits back, her ears lay down, and she takes that line way better hmm. than she ever had before. And that was from one like one little five-second change, you know, it's, it's just made, made Which a Which is similar impact. to even understanding the e-collar, right? It's mm. What you've said is here's what we're going to do. And then the dog comprehends that. It, right. Right? I mean, isn't that part of the process? Yeah. Yeah. And in that situation, he had the dog up there and he's trying to line the dog up, but the dog isn't isn't knowing yet what's going to happen. Right. But the dog did understand the dead cue, meaning now blind retrieve. Mm-hmm. So when he used the dead cue right away, the dog knew it was a blind retrieve, went into a more obedient mental state. Hmm. Therefore, it went into a more obedient physical state and would move mm-hmm. and work with Casey more before he sent the dog. Yeah. Interesting. It's yeah. a huge change. Hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, and those are you know those are things that um, someone that's trained a lot of dogs can help help with, and I, I think it's good to have those group interactions like that and be able to learn. Yeah. Yeah. You can watch so many people's dogs, but one thing that you can physically see with the obedient state of mind. And I think you mentioned it. It's the ear pin. Yeah. And that yeah. was one thing that you taught me from that training yeah. session is that prey drive is ears forward. 
and that's your visual cue that they're in that mental state hmm. and your visual cue that they're in an obedience state is that their ears are back. Yep. So yep. you can literally see it. Yep. Yeah, that's when the dog's sitting next to you, the ears pinned back versus the ears up. Now when the dog's out in front of you and facing you, there's three signals of the there's three signs or signals a dog gives to tell you the dog's in an obedient mental state. And that would be eye contact, ears pinned back, and then just the tip of the tail wags a little bit. Those are the three. <laughs> and that tells you that dog is in an obedient mental state and is ready to learn. Hmm. So let's go through that again. Eye contact, ears back. Yeah, they're like yep. folded back on the dog's head. Ears are back when they're obedient. Ears are up. forward or up. up when they're in prey mode. Yes, sir. Huh. And then the tail, just is the just tip, a little, just the tip of it. It's not a big t- whole tail wag, but just the tip wags a little bit. I don't want to play poker with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really fascinating. But I want to be able to explain and point out those signals to people, not just say, "Well, you know, it's a, uh, it's just something magical." It's not. There's mm-hmm. actually signs, signals the dogs give that tell you what the mental state is. And that is actually how dogs communicate to each other is with physical signals that they give each other with their tail, their hair, their ears. And if they're square, they stand sideways. And that's how they communicate where we're a, we're a verbal species. Mm -hmm. So we rely on verbal like we're doing right now. Sure. So dogs could never do a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if enough time, you could get them to that 80%, Tim. Um, So, I mean, it's easy to see some of the uh, visual cues they give us. You know, a a dog that's intimidated, they, you know, tuck their tail. Yeah, yeah, we don't want that. Right. Or or like you said, the submissive dog. Um, You know, I I think about dogs when they're really focused, their eyes are alive. And, you know, um, so, so there are some visual cues that are pretty natural, but it's really interesting to hear you talk about the very three specific ones when you know that they're in, you know, obedient mindset and they're basically waiting for direction from you. They are. Yep. They're saying, you're the leader. What are we going to do next? And they're waiting for you to say what's next. And it definitely is a look of like, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. Like I'm ready to learn. I'm not distracted. Mm -hmm. I have all my focus on you. And Mm -hmm. they're, they're waiting for us to say what's going to happen next. So we'll transition to talk about each of your dogs and what, what you were working on. It, one thing that I think is important that I'll throw out there, you know, I've never owned a retriever, never really gone through a lot of retriever training. I've always had either Britneys or short hairs. And um, this was really eye-opening to me and, and different. You know, I, I, it, it, we talked about this a little bit. You know, there's going to be a lot of similarities to my, my expectations, and, and there was. But it did feel like just the commands, um, the vernacular is different. You know, I've never said mark or blinds or back. Right. Yeah. You know, um, it's all, I use wool, right? That wasn't out here. Yeah. Right? Um, So as I mentioned before, we start hitting record. Like you guys were talking Italian. I was talking Spanish. And together we spoke Spitalian together. Which I understand a lot of the philosophies and there's parallels, but, you know, there is some value in in working with a a person that is focused on retrievers and understanding, you know, strengths, weaknesses, their mindset, because there is some dramatic differences, 
a dog is a dog is a dog and there's a hierarchy, but your expectations of what you wanted are pretty different from some of the expectations that I want with the pointer. Now, foundationally, there's a lot of similarities in obedience, but some of the training, particularly the blinds and, you know, waterfall hunting, I just, I never got to that point with my dogs. Right. Well, if you're sitting there waiting for hours for birds to come in and having to run blind retrieves, mm-hmm. you're, you certainly want a dog that has been trained for more of the obedient type stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going to walk for miles and miles and want your dog to hunt the whole time, mm-hmm. you want to train more for more of a prey drive, mm-hmm. you know, but still there's both going on. That's, that's what I would like yeah, to bring it in, in both to your the, balance. Yeah. In both the upland only dogs or the waterfall only dogs, mm-hmm. there's still, there's still both the obedient mental state and the prey drive mental state going on. And you still want to balance. And this kind of thing definitely comes true when you want a good, well-behaved house dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. Amy. I pheasant hunt 80% of the time and I duck hunt 20 and ultimately have a functional duck dog. But what I got hooked on is the hunt test. And you need to have both in order to bring up to that master level, mm-hmm. senior level, and Nora work. Mm. And that's yeah. what's challenged but, me. Like the drive there too is the dog games. Yeah. Mm. But if you know how to put your dog into a prey drive mode, then you can hunt for miles. Mm-hmm. And if you know how to put your dog in an obedient mental state, you can sit there for hours and wait for birds to come in. Yeah. Best it of does, both worlds. It, it, well, it does Absolutely. relate back um, it, to an earlier point I tried to make about artistry. You know, it, it really is, you know, we, we all, when we look at a painting or listen to music, different things resonate with individuals mm-hmm. differently, right? I, I like punk rock, Green Day, Turnpike, Troubadour, <laughs> right? Uh, and Emmy Metallica. listens to death metal, right? Or, yes, yeah, Metallica isn't death metal, but, <laughs> right? but which is, and we have different sensibilities of painters, mm-hmm. right? And Tim's an artist with dogs, right? And different things that resonate with different people. And that's critically important. If you've listened to podcasts or watch YouTube and you're just not getting it, go to the next one. Yeah. Because ev- right? <laughs> eventually you're going to connect and understand, ah, I, I get this thought process. Yep. That's going to help me get there. Because everybody, it's, it's like professors. We all had our favorites in college, and they weren't all the same, right? There's some that are excellent, but they weren't all the same. And then you just got to keep looking till you find one that really connects with you and your, your, the way you learn. Which is why Team Retriever at the office wanted Tim to come in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. Yes. You're like, Bob, you go to the well with the same guys. We're like, yeah, I found artists I like, guys. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. So, Emmy, let's um, let's talk about Lou and what you're working on and um, in kind of put into your words your goals, and then we'll get um, Tim's feedback. Yeah. So... I got the big engine dog because I want to run at that top level. That'll be new. My first dog, I got to intermediate in AKC, that's senior, and in Nora, that's intermediate. And I got hooked enough that I want to train that big running dog. So pedigree, paid attention to, got the right setup. And honestly, I'm the thing that's going to hold this dog back. So really, it's figuring out that working partnership and training myself really on the e-collar and I know how important yard work is and it's so boring and it's the not fun for really anyone involved, but it is absolutely critical to getting to that end point. 
And that's why I've always found working with Tim very interesting because he's, to be fair to the dog, you have to do that yard work and the drill work. And that's what requires discipline. And that's how you can take a retriever and just do badass things with them. Like when they work for you <laughs> yeah. at that level, it's just cool. It, it, it is. It, well, this goes back to we all like different music and, and different yes. artists, right? Like what gets you juiced is the blind retrieves and being able to control your, you know. And it's it, both. I can do Upland and I can do for those right. That one North Dakota waterfowl trip that I do where I do need that skill set, I have it. Yeah. And then ultimately, I also use it in the hunt test world. So it's not just a one time a year skill. But for what we did today with uh, my puppy, Louie's one and a half. And I'm really, I know what I need to do. And I'm dragging myself into the drills. So Tim helped set up a, a tea drill. And quickly, as he watched tea me. Tea drill. Explain it, what a tea True. drill. True. So we have three piles. There's going to be a back and that's what you want to send the dog to the most because you're teaching back. And mm-hmm. that's what they're going to start is just one pile. And eventually you just add in side piles. And with those side piles, now you start to have those directional hand casks. And you're basically starting to elevate the dog. That once they have that pile work at 80%, now you can start adding in the elements of side piles. They need to run past that. The directions you give them with your hand starts to matter. So visually... You can correct me if I'm wrong here. Here's the baseball <laughs> analogy everybody was waiting yes, for. Yes, it's also They use baseball. that as well, Yeah, right? same. Yes. Oh, okay, because it is. You put a pile of dummies on first base, a pile of dummies yep. on second base, a pile of dummies on third base. Your Lou, the black Labrador that's a year and a half old, yep. goes on the pitcher's mound. Yep. And then you tell Lou with hand signals and a whistle which yep. base to go pick a dummy up at. Yep. Accurate? Yes. Exactly. And the T really just comes where I was talking with Tim of pushing those side piles back. Because hmm. ultimately, you do end up using more angle backs than you do like a straight, perfectly with the baseball scenario where it's like, no, literally 90 degree angle, go over. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's kind of how that ends up being a T, is that you're, mm. you're starting to focus more on the cast that you're more likely to make as they advance. Right. But baseball so you, is the starting structure. Yeah, you can create them and any design like your favorite duck spread right or decoy spread but the fundamental thing is being able to control your dog to go into different places using whistle and hand signal yeah so the t the t teaches that go and the stop with the whistle and the hand signal and i think that's 49 percent of the importance of the t for example hmm 49, that's a very specific yes, number. Yeah, because <laughs> 51% of the importance, in my opinion, uh-huh. is the dog becoming collar conditioned for all the common problems that that dog might present to you the rest of its life. Okay. And that's why this is foundational. Okay. And so there's many things that a retriever might do that could kind of back us into a corner if we don't have a command correction combination already taught for the dog for these problems okay like the dog might decide not to go or the dog goes real slow or the dog is going and then it just stops that's called popping huh or it stops out there and then it just sits there and it won't do anything huh it, it won't keep going um it won't let's say it doesn't stop on the whistle let's say it won't cast we want to go or it does stop on the whistle, but it's a real loopy sit. Or it will stop on the whistle, but then it sniffs the ground and doesn't give us eye contact, mm-hmm. which is the specific behavior we were working on 
today with, yeah. with, Lou. with, with Lou. Lou was when he stopped, he needed to make eye contact with Emmy. And we were, we were working on teaching the dog to understand a specific correction for that problem. Hmm. So that when he does that at 200 yards, she has a way of gaining back that the leadership and correcting that dog in a way that that dog for sure understands. Hmm. If we didn't, if we didn't teach these command correction combinations, then just tried to use the e-collar for these problems, we would not expect the dog to understand that. And, and that's where you can ruin a sensitive dog really quick is by not hmm. collar conditioning it and then using the e-collar in some way that... So let's mm-hmm. explain collar conditioning just fundamentally. So, so as I understand it based on your explanation here, Right, you, when the dog, when you're training in the backyard to do something and they don't do it, that's when you give a nick. We've picked that specific problem, like today was eye contact. Yep. It could be a nick or it could be continuous, but it's going to be a consistent command and correction combination. Okay. So uh, we're going to u- we use some light continuous today because that is how the dog was taught on recall. Okay. This is a mental recall eye contact. Got it. Not a physical recall. But we're, so we're still going to use the continuous for anything involving recall oh, with this low. dog. I'm not telling any listener to do it that way. What, I'm, what I would say is use what your dog understands. Okay. So this eye contact correction evolves from a recall correction. Okay. From the hear or come command and a correction that you've taught. And so this is a mental recall. And so we have this controlled environment with these three piles, mm-hmm. and we can keep putting the dog back in this situation till we see an improvement in the eye contact where we then praise the dog and tell the dog, yes, that's what I want you to do when I use this light continuous. And say, look, as Emmy was doing, our, in our program, we bend a little bit to the dog. We give a visual signal to the dog to look at us. Mm. And to make that eye contact. And that's just one example, right? There's all the other things I stated, too, that we're going to check the box that the dog understands. And, again, that's, to me, 51% of the importance. It's very tedious. It takes time. Lots of repetition. Mm -hmm. And it is very foundational, like the foundation on your house, right? No one walks into your house and says, wow, you have a great foundation here. But if you didn't have a good foundation and you built a really tall house that looked cool, what would happen? It would right. fall down. Right. Everyone wants to jump ahead and build the house without the foundation. Which is drill work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finding the opportunities to then use the collar when you are doing those drills. Because the things that, I mean, right now I'm working on eye contact that came up really quick. Guarantee I'm going to eventually see a sloppy whistle stop. And so knowing what the dog is likely to do at some point in time and knowing how you're going to respond, that's kind of that, that cue up. So for me today, Tim called out right away the eye contact piece and then immediately told me that's all we're working on. So all that I'm now going to Nick. So you mentioned Nick. Mm-hmm. Nick starts with sit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like leash stuff with your really basic stuff. It's just bringing in the collar instead of the leash. So it's fair they understand what it is. And then recall ends up being continuous. It's just like reeling a dog in on a check cord. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm I'm using the Nick feature just on eye contact. And that's all I'm correcting for. And that was really helpful to know. Like, that's the one thing. Like this drill, this T drill is now all about eye contact. And that's it. And we ended on a really successful note mm-hmm. that I had 
consistent eye contact, sent him for my cast, and we called it we called it a day. How important is it to end on a positive? Oh, you always should. So especially in this collar conditioning phase, when we – like so today I thought that Lou, he learned how to get out of pressure when it was happening by making eye contact. Mm -hmm. But that last, rep, that last rep we did, he just sat there and made great eye contact. And then he got to get his bumper with no pressure. And that's how he learned to avoid the pressure. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two aspects there. Dog needs to learn how to get out of pressure. Mm -hmm. But then the dog needs to learn how to avoid that pressure in the first place. And the T-drill gave us a reason to, to see that improvement in his effort and his obedience and eye contact. And to then not have the pressure happen and end on a success. So mm -hmm. next step is... To reach 80% success rate with eye contact. Once, just what, eye yeah, contact. and once he is good with eye contact 80% of the time mm -hmm. and understands a correction 80% of the time, now we're, now I would recommend you move on to something else on the list and you check the box for that. Gotcha. And, and I'll add, it makes it seem like I'm recommending you're just using the e-collar a lot, and I'll, I'll say that it's temporary. Hmm. It's temporary just for the T on land. Once you get done with the T and you know you have all these command corrections taught, I want you to really work hard on not using the e-collar to be a very systematic teacher. Because I know there's someone that's going to listen to this and think that I'm just saying we should just go out and zip zap for every little thing. Mm -hmm. Not the case. It's a, it's a temporary part of collar conditioning. But and a, you made that there, point. Yeah. There, particularly a, when you're in a hunting scenario, you hardly ever have to use it. Right. So, but... Uh, uh, un, you cannot be conditioned to anything without being exposed to that stimulus. Mm -hmm. So we have to actually use the e-collar to condition the dog to it. Mm -hmm. I can then yeah. use look. Lou knows what look means at that point. We'll go from there. But for me, the amateur thing that I also learned that I just want to end with kind of that piece was to not change it. That the moment we identified what we were working on was eye contact, there was also a very specific pile that I was casting him to. And another amateur move I made is that then I put him right back into that and I changed the pile. I gave him a back cast and Tim immediately gave me the feedback is that we can't change the picture now that we've established we are in a lesson mm -hmm. because the dog learns by comparisons mm -hmm. and all I did was change that picture. So now I have the potential that I just showed Lou that I have a, a hot pile, that that's the pile is now the issue. Right. You gave it out. Exactly. Yeah. So the key thing there is one, identify one thing you're working on, apply pressure to that be consistent but then also that you have now created a picture that you're trying to create a comparison of success yeah the and only that, change we wanted was for him to make better eye contact and not receive that pressure we didn't want to change what pile he's going to because a dog is all too likely to interpret something we don't want them to interpret like oh this pile over here of bumpers is good but this bumper pile is bad that mm -hmm. was the problem mm -hmm. no the problem was your eye contact was lacking mm -hmm. You just didn't hmm. communicate that. Clearly. Yeah, yeah, and so we have <laughs> to. Someone learned from that. Yeah, because that's yeah. what I took away, and it was big. That's... We have to respect the dog for their like simplicity and, mm -hmm. and not complicate it too much. Mm -hmm. We're complicated; they're not. Yeah, they learn by comparisons. That's yeah. That's your a good big point. word. That word comparison. Mm -hmm. hmm. Casey, tell us about uh, Bruni. Bruly. Bruly. I screwed L. it yeah. up. Bruly. It's a hard one. <laughs> so I. And I'll tell that story real fast. Sure. Is that she is named after the Brule River in northern Wisconsin. You know there's no Y on there, right? 
Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I should have just named it rule. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a major point of contention between my wife and I. We had seventeen different names that we all hated, and that was the only one that we both didn't like completely hate. Yeah. Um, but, and I, I didn't think about this at the time, but if anybody's familiar with the Brule river, it's beautiful. It, it is beautiful. Steelhead. Beautiful steelhead river, co- incredibly unforgiving and frustrating. Mm. And will take you to your wit's end very quickly. So in, in retrospect, <laughs> that, it's a great name for a puppy. Was that foreshadowing? It, yeah, was, I guess huh? it was. I didn't think about it at the time. So anyway, um, so Brule is a, a four-year-old female black lab, um, we're at an intermediate NARA level right now. She has, we actually just failed our, we failed an intermediate test for the first time uh, two weekends ago. So we're, uh, she's my first lab. I, you know, I grew up with English setters and I have a, a setter as well. It's my first sort of dive into the Labrador world. So we're trying to figure stuff out together. Um, and we're starting to work some senior level concepts in, you know, and I think she'll, that would be my eventual goal. My goal when I started this was to get an intermediate title, kind of like you with Lux, mm-hmm. right? Um, now that I'm there, I feel like maybe I can go a little bit further. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Again, it, it, if, it's, she, if she's gotten, certainly got it in her, it's whether or not I'm, I'm capable of, of taking her to that level. So this is, we didn't really work into this today, but I went out of that test last weekend on a very particular um setup that i haven't really done enough of yet it was, okay. it was a an angled entry water blind and i'll try to explain this mm-hmm. um in in a way that makes sense so it's like if you're looking down the shore of a lake mm-hmm. right and 50 yards down or however far there's a rock dike that comes out perpendicular okay the blind is on the end of that rock dike gotcha your dog has to take the water from the shore s- directly to the end of that rock dike. So they can't run of, out on the, okay. In, instead of, and she. Well, one of my shorters yeah. would fail. One yeah. maybe would have a chance. <laughs> so, and um, it was, as soon as I lined up, I was like 80% it's going right out the window on this one. Cause there's no way I knew going in like there's, we're, we're, it's an uphill battle hmm. and I couldn't get her off the shore, you know? Um, so I need to, um, and then we were, that we failed the test. So, uh, that's, that's so sort of what I'm working on. Right was now. she wanting to go? Yeah. She wanted to, she dike? wants to take the land all the way to the dike and then okay. come out rather and than And you couldn't in get her into the water Can't, to swim. Could not get her into the yeah, water. Yeah. The dog yeah. wants to conserve energy mm-hmm. and, and take the path of least resistance. Sure. As a survival instinct, but through breeding and training, we teach them to <laughs> take the path, the hardest path, gotcha. which in this case is the water. Where it's very, t- very tempting to take the land. That's why it's called like down the shore blind. You're close to the shore, but you're in the water. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just squaring up to a lake and going out to like a bumper that's out there. It's right. It's a it's a complicated, yeah. um, you know, thing to teach these dogs to do. Test of yeah. obedience, right? Right. How but let's. But I think it's a good. We should break that down a little bit yeah. and talk about how do you how how do you work on this? Is what you don't do. It's just go out there and replicate it. Right. Okay. I yeah. think I think now you as the you as the trainer of this dog needs to break down the things that were that caused the failure mm-hmm. and 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 make a win out of it by isolating the thing or the things that you identified as the weakness and working on them individually mm-hmm. in a drill type format hmm. and then going out and trying to run one and see if you get a better result. Right. So what's a drill then if you could uh, just throw a setup in there of something that simplifies that concept to sort of 
work those issues out or individually or together? Two types of drills come to mind for me. One is a lining drill that involves this with a visual target at the end uh-huh. where that dog does learn to slice into the water. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of training for perfect. You know, you're trying to get the dog to take this difficult line, which is the path between you and the destination is mm-hmm. what we call that line. Um, the other thing to do is train and plan for when things don't go perfect. Right. And that would be your cast into the water should the dog want to run down the bank. Mm-hmm. So now you set up a casting drill where you set the dog there. You've put out some bumpers or birds or whatever, maybe identified a pile even, mm-hmm. and you've backed away. And you're, and you're giving this cast into the water. And, and you could have one, two, or three piles mm-hmm. where maybe one's like a big over obvious pile to get in the water and then one's more of an angle back and mm-hmm. then one's a straight back just cut a corner. Or it's going to depend on what you have available to you for water to right. train well, on. I think that's a big hurdle as well, right, is oftentimes we don't have, uh, we don't have access to the kind of water kind of geographic area to set some right but you're really limited by your own creativity i think i guess have some water to train on if there's Mm -hmm. a will there's a way right Uh, on on just a big body of water you could have a bumper floating and just set the dog Uh back up 40 yards and cast to that bumper okay and then think about well do i have a do i have a correction developed for this yet or not right and And kind of thinking about that and Mm -hmm. you know maybe there's some collar conditioning that needs to be done and right. and you're and you're just telling the same story as as myself when i first started to run the nara test and i i i didn't believe or like the e-collar use at all mm-hmm. and i thought it was unnecessary and then with a like a five-year-old dog had to back you know realize that to back up because right. like in the in the started or the first level of nara it's very basic it's like see a bird fall Go get it, bring it back one at a time. Yeah, do that five times, right? And then, and then when in in that time there was no hunter division, you had to jump right to intermediate, hmm. and the dog has to remember two birds and then run a blind retrieve. And that those blind retrieves, those those are the ones that get us new people, like you did your angle entry <laughs> because it's so they're so difficult. They require so much training and a certain type of training that's done properly. Hmm. And, and we lose a lot of people in the retriever game of all the three main different hunt tests between the, the beginning starting level and that inner, that middle intermediate type level. We lose a lot of our people because they become frustrated and they can't, can't pass get over the the hurdle. They can't get over the hurdle, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and I want to help change that for people and, and give people that knowledge where they can get their own dogs to that level. Mm-hmm. That because that's where I think you really have a really great hunting dog is when you're successful at that intermediate level. Hmm. And that if you want to go on to NAR Senior or AKC Master or finished in in the HRC program, that, that's kind of like a bonus. I mean, that's for fun, really. Right. You know, I think. But that that intermediate level is where you really have a great, awesome hunting dog. Well, hmm. and I I think. Uh, in retrospect now, I probably had gotten a little bit complacent as well in that I'd passed intermediate tests and was, you know, kind of like, I, I felt pretty good about it. And I'd just never been thrown that situation before. And as soon as I got out there, I was like, oh, I recognize right away. And I didn't train for this enough, you know, like I, it's just not something that I've done enough. So now I got to go back. Right? Yeah. And yeah. Well, it sounds like you're taking it really well and handling it well as, a, as an opportunity and I think that's great. Some people just complain as a judge's fault or, 
right. you know, make, make an excuse yeah. for the dog and themselves mm-hmm. where you're, you're looking at this failure and how can I improve? Yeah. Well, I think it, you know, you talked about that earlier with the 80, 20 thing, right? It's like, if I'm just, if we're flying through everything, we're not, hmm. you know, doing right. as well as we could be doing. Right. So you got to have, take your lumps in certain places, you know? Yeah. So. And learn from it. Yeah. So we didn't do water mm-hmm. today. We, we did blinds, right? So how do you feel like Bruley? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did Bruley do uh, during today's exercise? Today, pretty well. Um, so in this, uh, we just did one land blind and, so land blind, explain what what that is. Right. So a, a land blind is just a blind retrieve on land. They don't have to go th- through water to, to get there, right? So, And the dog doesn't know where it is. The dog did right. not see yep. us put it out. So right. we had a bird out there, what, about 80 yards or yep. so? Mm-hmm. And the dog had no idea it was there. Yep. So, um, and we had run a marked retrieve to the left of this blind prior to that. And I... And on the blind, I don't know if this is the case or not, but she was wanting to go left, right? And I'm having to cast her back to the right pretty often. She's yeah. probably getting sucked by that old mark, right? Definitely. So the mark okay. retrieve is where Emmy went on the field and blew a duck call and shot a thunder cannon gun simulator and threw the bird up in the air, which very exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All prey drive. Mm-hmm. And and the she did or he did great. But then, yes, he want he wants to go back there again and look for another one, even though there's not one there. But dogs can't, dogs don't understand that. They right. think there's one there. They're hopeful or whatever. So you were fighting to get him to go to the right. But I thought it went pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I thought it went really well. What it, what it was very interesting is, you know, as you, as you talked about a moment earlier. So the marked retrieve, <clears throat> where Bruley mm-hmm. could see the the bird that's prey drive mindset right well you want you need it to be right mm-hmm. yeah you want it to be very excited yeah you, you know yeah ears if, forward yeah, yeah. Uh, ears up and if the dog's not when it, that happens you have a big problem right and other than like lining the pup up and just giving a word to really what word did you use, use for release on the mark or the on the mark uh her name Okay. Yep. Yeah, and that's a and great. Then, it's a great word. It's, it is a release that you're saying. Go ahead. Where the blind retrieve is a send, mm-hmm. right? Because it was two completely different things. Fun, you know, fundamentally, when you're looking at it, it's like, oh, dog went out and retrieved a bird. But there are two very different things happening, mm-hmm. both from a training perspective and from the dog's perspective. On the marked, dog is in a mindset of. I know there's a bird there. This is the funnest day ever. You know, (laughs) and you had a released word and then you were quiet and the dog got to use its legs, its nose, its body to find the bird and and eyes, right? Big, big, big on the eyes. And um, grabbed the bird, brought it right back to you. Completely different, like just body language for you and for the dog on the blind retreat. Explain that. Yeah, well, it, it immediately switches from that prey drive into obedience, right? I mean, it's all obedience. And because I, the dog has no idea where the bird is, mm-hmm. and they're relying on you to be the pilot. Right, yeah. And I, Sorry to interrupt. I, I try to change my demeanor as well, and this is something that I want to ask you about as well. But um, on a blind compared to a mark a little bit, right, where I'm trying to be uh, to help put them in that obedient 
mindset, right? I'm I'm tend to be quieter, right? Um, and a little more, a little easier with my voice while we're doing stuff like that. And then I, you know, get up there and scream back, you know, yeah, right? Yeah. It's just, it's a little more, you know, just kind of go ahead, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just putting them in an obedient mindset, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that. I and I thought you did. Yep. But if you if you're if you're if you're trying and it's not happening, yeah, then you, I would first use natural pressure. Sure. And if that didn't work, you might use unnatural pressure, like mm-hmm. an e-collar correction. Yep. But again, it would have to be one the dog understands. Right. So it might be sit Nick, for example. Yeah. Well, I actually struggle with that because I didn't when I collar conditioned her, I missed steps and didn't do it correctly. Right. And we were starting, I was starting to apply pressure in blinds and she's not understanding. She's coming yep. back to me and she's right. not doing any, and then she won't go, you know, she's doing, yep. uh, or she's popping or whatever. And, uh, what sort of broke through that for me at least was to revert back to natural pressure where I would just, um, just use back again in route. Right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, or just a no here instead of a, instead of pressure. And that's for whatever reason that seemed to work. I mean, her, her training is, I mean, she's held together with like duct tape, you know, it's like we're, we've well, gotten her there. She, I don't know pretty, how sometimes. But, it was yeah. really very impressive from my perspective. You know, when, when I saw you do the blind, you lined up um, Bruley mm-hmm. and you kind of pointed towards So there's an orange stake in the field where visually we could see where the, the, the pheasant is, is laying, right? Yep. So you had a line and you released Send. Bruley on, send. Mm-hmm. And so not not the dog's name, send, but a command. Send on the command back. Okay. Right. And every, you know, about, I don't know, eight feet, um, Bruley was starting to drift to yep, the left. drifting left a little bit. And you'd immediately blow the whistle yep. and Bruley would stop. And looked to you, made eye contact. I mean, you had all the elements here. Made mm-hmm. eye contact, stopped, looked, and you send Bruley to the right. Yep. It, did you release with a whistle or? Nope, just the just, just the, the hand, hand motion. Okay. Yep. And another eight feet, and <laughs> she would drift to the left again. Yeah, she right? was really wanted that. Which is what you're telling me, because the the marked birds that she got to watch were further to the left. So, yep. Just natural tendency to do, and you did it. I don't know five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you she'd make eight feet, start drifting to the left. You blow the whistle, stop, till you got almost to that marked orange flag. Yep. Right. You stopped her right past, and you could see, like I could physically see w- downwind. Yeah, she knows where it is. At, at then her nose kind of picked up. Mm-hmm. She identified where that bird was, but she waited. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it is a she. She, she yep. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, you know. And um, and and you uh, blew the whistle, or no, you didn't blow the whistle. You just gave the hand signal, and I instantly mm-hmm. went and picked up the bird and brought it right back to you. Yep. So while you were at some level frustrated that Bruley was drifting, mm-hmm. what I saw was complete control. Of your dog, very obedient, and yeah. while maybe it wouldn't score in a test the way that you want from a from a hunter's perspective, right? It's like okay, as long as that bird's dead right there, you put that dog like 
boom, right? <laughs> on the jackpot. Yeah. It was incredibly impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's um and it, it was a good blind. Like I I I'm happy with that with a blind to that level. Hmm. Um but yeah, it it's watching it is you know, we're talking about what hooks different people. That's what hooked me on this stuff really, really hard. Is hmm. The first time I watched a dog run a blind retrieve, I was just like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen in yeah. my life. Yeah. I Simultaneously, it was like, I will never be able to do that with my dog, right? I just, <laughs> <laughs> it but is, so it's, it's like working up to that. It's just, and then, you know, to, to have that kind of partnership at 80 yards mm-hmm. is a lot of fun for me. It's, yeah. I can see how that would juice you. Yeah. How you'd become a dad. Uh, I, I, it was it was thrilling to watch. Yeah. Now I'll admit, the the juice that I feel is when a dog just sent something and like stops like a statue. Right. It's like, oh, <laughs> why? Did, how do they even you know? Or they honor another dog just without. It, to me, that's it. Doesn't matter, right? right. The, the the fact that we all find. Uh, you know where that light shines down from heaven and is like this is what i meant to do <laughs> this is the coolest thing in the world yep. however that connects for you is is it, 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 it exists in the upland world in a variety of different ways yeah and dogs bring so many different aspects of it out mm-hmm. for sure yeah i mean i thought it w- i was very impressed that when the dog saw and smelled the bird and mm-hmm. you blew that whistle the dog still sat mm-hmm. and made good eye contact right and waited now that to me was very, I was I was really impressed when I saw that. And I thought it was a pretty decent blind retrieve for an intermediate level dog. Right. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And the reason you have had success is you've worked so hard at it, and you and your dog do have, you know, a, a way of communicating with each other. Now, have you done it perfectly? No. And Definitely you, ne- you never will. <laughs> yeah. There, there's no such thing as perfect in dog training. Right. But you'll just get better with this dog, with her, and with future dogs. Yeah. So as we round the corner, I see I've taken up your entire evenings, and <laughs> it appears we have a storm rolling in. I thought, like <laughs> and I know all of our vehicles are open. Yes. <laughs> so I'm going to take us to closing thoughts. <laughs> so, so Emmy, we'll start with you. Um, as you think about this conversation, you know, you were one of the the first people that said absolutely we should do a podcast with Tim about behavioral science and and thought process with a thinking about dogs from a mental state. Give us your, help us put a bow on this conversation. Drills. Don't skip drills. And find those opportunities for those likely things you're going to see, such as eye contact, cast refusals, won't stop, won't recall, sloppy whistle sit, and just no-going you. But you're going to see that when you do drill work. So you need to do the drill work, and you need to have what your known e-call or conditioned responses to that. So you can use it if you need to in the field in a fair manner. And that's ultimately that tool that you need to go from that intermediate level to the big dog, Mm. senior running level. I fully believe that. (laughs) Well, and I think what's important there, yeah, it's it's probably not the most fun process, but by creating that foundation, that's where the magic ends up happening because you go through that process. It happens in the fall hunting season where you just train. Right, you just wing that bird, and you're like, ah, and and we've all felt that moment, like, ah, I probably just crippled a bird, and I don't want to lose that bird. And you know, if you go through the foundation, that dog is going to help you save your bacon, and not have that bad feeling of leaving a bird 
crippled out there in the field. Absolutely. And, you know, trailing is my not next forget thing the, that I need to teach Lou how well, to trail and, a bird. And not forget, you know, being able to boast in front. Do you see my dog yeah. do that? <laughs> Heck yes. So, which is magical too, right? Well, you know, you're the good when feeling. other people brag about your dog yeah. and you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Casey, your closing thoughts. Um, well, I, I think I would just say, uh, I would go a little bit broader and say that I would never have been able to have access to something like Tim's knowledge um, without getting involved in a local hunt club. Mm. And I didn't know they existed when I got my dog. I, you know, I didn't know the first thing about it. And I cannot overstate the value of getting involved with good local amateur and professional, both trainers who, I mean, I'm, my, my dog is doing stuff now that I never thought that we would be capable of. Mm. And I've learned so much just by standing next to some of the great trainers at Four Points Retrievers Club and watching them work. Uh, it's I, it's an unbelievable resource. Yeah. So I, I think anybody, whether, you know, whether you want, you have a pointing dog and or in, mm-hmm. get interested, Navda, Nara, wh- whatever organization. Oofta, Nastra, yeah, whatever. You, you, there's <laughs> there's all a kinds million of, of them. Right? right? There is. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you're not, Emmy, you're not in your head the entire I time. I could that's not pretty, agree more. Yeah. Yeah. That's a way better takeaway. That one. <laughs> no, they start both, there. They're both you, very important. And we do hooked. have partnerships with, as an organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has partnerships with a whole bunch of these folks. But, yep. it, you know, they exist in all these communities. Even, you know, clubs of breed clubs. You know, the uh, American Brittany Club, mm-hmm. German Short Hair Club, or the library. I mean, there may be not as formal a training process, but what you're talking about is creating a community of like-minded people that, you know, can help you get to a, the next phase of your training process. Mm-hmm. And there are some, you know, as you get to the, um, beyond the breed clubs to the more formal training, you'll, you'll learn even faster. Thank you very much, Tim, for spending all this time. Um, as you think about closing thoughts for, for this conversation, what uh, what do you want to leave listeners with? Well, I mean, I have been involved in the training of over a 1,000 dogs, mm. and I've had this great opportunity, but I had to start with my first dog and train mm. it. And so I just want to really encourage people to to train their own dogs. And to, to tr- even though I'm a pro trainer and sure. I make a living on – training others' dogs, I, I really want to encourage people. I'm really proud of Casey and Emmy for training their own dogs and to watch their learning. And I think a lot of the listeners here can, can do the same thing. Right. Um, if folks want to find you online, look at videos, or sure. even reach out and ask a question, how do they locate sure. you? Sure. Um, our business name is Dynamic Retrievers. So D-Y. Yeah, D-Y-N-A-M-I-C. Okay. And then you got to spell retrievers, right? Which is R-E-T-R-I-E-V-R-S. <laughs> so dynamicretrievers.com. Okay. Uh, you can, you know, email me. You can call me on the number there. Um, text me. Okay. Um, I, have a, I have a do-it-yourself program, too, that I'm helping people learn to train their own dogs. I have seminars, um, all kinds of options for helping people learn. And, and that is my new kind of exciting thing is, is helping, helping people learn to train their own dogs. Cool. I really get excited about that. I've, I've, I've uh, have so many ribbons from my career in hunt tests and field trials, and that's great. I learned a lot and I've really come back full circle, really enjoying 
seeing someone train their own like really great family hunting dog mm -hmm. even is very rewarding to me now to see other people do it and you have a locations in minnesota as well as texas yep right so we have a full-time texas facility with a air-conditioned training room <laughs> Important it's, it's, texas. It's, it's too hot yeah. yeah yep and we we've we've been seasonal in minnesota where we're, we have a maybe something new and exciting to talk about in the future uh, out in western minnesota we'll see how that goes and okay yeah it's it's i, I can't even believe where this has taken me yeah DynamicRetrievers.com. Yes. Tim, yep. thank yes, you very sir. much. Casey, Emmy, thank you for spending your evening talking uh, about your pups. Very impressed with both of your pups. Uh, exciting adventure you're on. Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having us. All right, folks. Thank you very much for listening uh, to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.